Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It often seems like we live in a very inconsiderate, indifferent, and ill-mannered time, and that the cure for what ails our abrasive and disjointed relations is a lot more politeness. But my guests would say that what we really need is a revival of civility. Today on the show, Alexandra Hudson, author of The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, explains the difference between politeness and civility and how being civil can actually require being impolite. We discuss how civility ensures the health of democracy, and good government requires citizens' ability to govern themselves and check each other, which may require acting a little like Larry David. We talk about what Homer's Odyssey can teach us about the art of hospitality, the relationship between civility and integrity, and more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is civility. All right, Alexandra Hudson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brett. You got a new book out called The Soul of Civility, where you explore what it means to be civil. That's a topic that a lot of people talk about when they see things get acrimonious online. And you started the book off with a story talking about your experience in Washington that led you to take this deep dive into civility. So walk us through that experience. What happened in Washington? Thanks, Brett. So my book is about what I think is the most important question of our day, which is how do we flourish across deep difference? And I think you're right. People see the rancor and divisiveness all around us and intuit that this is a serious problem. I have a unique background and familiarity with this topic. I was raised by Judy the Manners Lady. My mother is this internationally renowned expert in etiquette and manners. And actually, while writing this book, I discovered that my mother is only what a four woman named Judy, who are internationally renowned experts in manners and etiquette. So my mother is a, um, uh, yeah, there, there's Judith Martin of the Washington Post, who's maybe the most famous. My mother is also one of these figures. So I was raised in this home that was attentive to social norms and, and expectations. And in addition to teaching manners, my mother really embodied the spirit of grace and hospitality and other orientedness that is the hallmark of true civility, as I define it, sacrifice of the self so that the social can flourish in, in ourselves and society. And one thing my mother always said to me growing up was that manners mattered because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And I have this constitutional allergy to authority. I don't like being told <laughs> what to do for no reason. And so I always kind of questioned these social norms. You know, why do we use forks and not chopsticks? Why do we do things the way that we do them? But I always followed them. My mother, you know, promised that they would lead to success in work and school and life. And she was generally right until... I found myself at the United States Department of Education. <laughs> so I took this role in government because I love learning and I was raised in this intellectually omnivorous home. And I was confronted with these two extremes in government. On one hand, there were these people who had sharp elbows and who were hostile and willing to step on anyone to get ahead. And on the other hand, there were, the, there were these people who at first I thought were my people. They were the ones with polish and they were poised and they were suave and they knew the rules of etiquette and propriety. But I quickly came to realize that these were the people who would smile and flatter me one moment and then stab me in the back the next, that their 
polish, their politeness was this tool to disarm me and others in order to get ahead. And at first I thought these were polar opposites, but I realized that these two modes, the extreme hostility and the extreme politesse were actually two sides of the same coin because both modes instrumentalized others. They saw others as a means to their selfish ends, to their goals, whatever they wanted. And saw them as tools to either manipulate or, or discard. So I left government very disillusioned for many reasons, and one of which was the, the main reason was this, this extreme, you know, hostility and rancor and divisiveness. And so I left government and reflected deeply on this question: you know, what does it mean to be a human being, and what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed others by virtue of, of being members of the human community and, and having equal moral worth? as human beings? And and why does that matter in practice? What does that mean for our deeply divided moment? And one thing that experience helped me realize was that there is this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's a technique, it's behavioral, it's external, superficial. Whereas civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart that sees others as our moral equals and sees them as worth respecting in light of that. And sometimes actually respecting someone, actually being civil, requires being impolite. It requires breaking the rules of etiquette and propriety and and telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate, right? You had a great guest on a few weeks ago about the art of, of, of saying no to people. We're deeply uncomfortable with saying no to people, but actually saying no is a, is a way that we can respect ourselves and our own humanity, our own dignity. And so there is this relationship between respecting others and respecting ourselves, and that sometimes requires you know, being impolite. It feels impolite to say no to people. It feels impolite to tell them hard truths, but that's a way of actually respecting ourselves and others. Yeah, I think that that's the big theme in your book is the difference between civility and politeness. And your, your mom wasn't wrong when she said that manners, these outward things are important. Right. They, they work if the inner part, the civility part lines up. Right. And as you said, sometimes in order to be civil, you have to break the rules of etiquette. And I, I've often thought of you know being civil or even just etiquette what it means to have etiquette it it's all about making other people feel comfortable in whatever yes. situation you find yourself in. And so for the most part, we have these etiquette rules that say you shake hands this way, you introduce people this way, because it kind of helps smooth out our interactions with human beings. But sometimes in order to make that person feel comfortable, you might have to break the rules of etiquette. Right. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. There is this disconnect between inner and outer and that sometimes actually respecting people, actually supporting, facilitating friendship requires breaking the rules. And the story I love that illustrates this is the story of Queen Victoria when she was hosting this you know, grand state dinner at Buckingham Palace for the Queen of Sheba as her guest of honor. And the Queen of Sheba at this elegant state dinner did the unthinkable. She took the bowl in front of her and tipped it to her lips and sipped it. And of course, this was a finger bowl meant to wash your hands. So you don't drink the finger bowl. But what did Queen... So the, the room gasped and watched what the Queen did. And, and no one could believe what she did. She Queen Victoria took the bowl and did the exact same thing and tipped the finger bowl to her lips. Why? You know, she flouted these rules of propriety in her Victorian England that was very attentive and mindful of social norms and expectations, but she broke them because she wanted to make her guest feel at ease and comfortable. And she wanted to facilitate the friendship and facilitate the trust that is the stuff of the good life, the life well lived. And so you're absolutely right that I think at their best, manners can perfect and politeness can perfect the disposition of civility and facilitate social interactions, but on their own, they're not enough. Politeness alone, just doing the act, going through the, the, the actions and following blindly the rules of, of etiquette and propriety alone, that's not enough to, to heal our deep divisions and help us flourish. We need the disposition of civility that actually respects people as well. And yeah. And you mentioned that people can use politeness as a bludgeon right? To That's right. knock people over the head, kind of put them in their place. Like, oh, well, you don't know the rules. And I'm going to like exactly. shove this in your face and make you feel bad. 
Yeah, there's this great book I read as part of this writing my own book called Class by a, a gentleman named Paul Fusel, popular writer in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And he says that America, you know, we we like to think of our, ourselves as this classless society where the society where all men are created equal. And but he says that's not true. Like we we're actually a perpetually class conscious society because we pretend that class doesn't exist and we don't have these inherited things like rank and status and rituals that accord rank and status. We're socially mobile and always trying to get an upper hand and define ourselves by the other. And so he says that the middle class are the most status conscious and they're the most insecure. And the most insecure are the greatest, biggest snobs, the ones that are most fastidious about the rules of others and the social infractions of others. Why? Because if they know the rules, it it breeds their self-righteousness. And if you break the rules, it allows them to feel good in comparison to others. And so I think that's such a great insight that the people that are the most insecure are the ones that are most fastidious about the rules of propriety and, you know, tone policing and always surveying, making sure that everyone's doing the right thing, the proper thing. There's this great line I'm paraphrasing from George Bernard Shaw. He says, if you only take the trouble to follow the rules, you can basically get away with murder. <laughs> like, like that, that you, if, if people think that, you know, you can follow the rules, you can smile, you can have the, the proper facade, the proper persona, that that's enough. But, and we see that a lot today, a lot of, of, of silencing, of tone policing, of people worrying about what people are saying and weaponizing, you know, what's appropriate to say and what's not, as opposed to looking at people's heart. And we should not allow the rules of propriety to get in the way of, of actually having important conversations and actually respecting others. Yeah, you see that disconnect. I've read just articles in different magazines or newspapers of individuals who maybe came from lower class parts of America, working class, and then they, for you know, because they did well in the SAT, they end up at an elite college, and they find like the the fastidiousness about just what's proper. It was mind boggling for them. They couldn't figure it out, and they often felt out of step with everyone else. And then also it's, what's weird is like what they thought was proper, you know, for, as a working class person, because they kind of grew up by more of traditional idea, maybe of, of what it meant to be properly mannered. That wasn't the etiquette thing in the upper middle class. And so there's this disconnect and no one really explained it to them. And so they, they had to spend a lot of time just trying to figure out like, well, how am I supposed to act? Like even like the clothes you wear. So, you know, you might, a lot of working class people think, well, you know, I'm at this elite school or at this business, I should wear business attire. Well, now it's more like, well, that's actually gauche. If you wear a, sh- a shirt and tie <laughs> and a suit, you need to wear athleisure wear. That's kind of like, you know, subtly shows that you have this distinction. So yeah, it's an example of the, the stuff that it can be used, manners, politeness, propriety can be used to just make people feel terrible. You're absolutely right. It's such a great point that, you know, people today who claim that civility and manners are a tool of p- people in positions of power to silence or to keep people who are powerless in society powerless. You know, to some extent, they're right. And and I argue that they're talking about politeness. They're not talking about civility. And you made the great point that the rules of fashion and politeness, like that the, the, the norms du jour, the fashion du jour, those change with remarkable frequency. And we see that across history and across culture. Why do they change? Because the moment that the lower classes in society begin to adopt certain fashions or certain tastes and certain mores, then that the elites in society have to invent new ones to to keep ahead. They have to always have ways of distinguishing themselves from from everyone else in society. Two quick examples of this that I love from history. One is the hidden history of the pineapple. So in England in the 1800s, the pineapple, you know this 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 quotidian fruit that we see for 99 cents, you know, at Costco <laughs> everywhere today, utterly ubiquitous today, was this status symbol of like unconscious like we we can't even fathom how desirable the pineapple was. I, I, I read one article in The Guardian that estimated that a single pineapple in today's dollars would have cost you know, 150,000 pounds or something outrageously expensive. It was this elite status. So today, the pineapple is like the symbol of hospitality, and it has roots in this epoch in English history where the pineapple was just the status symbol of luxury. And, and so people would buy the pineapple and sit at their dinner table and then have these lavish parties right up until the pineapple was like, you know, rotting on their table. But it was this thing that conferred incredible cachet and status on the people who own the pineapple. 
And so some industrious merchants said, okay, I see an opportunity here. And they started importing pineapples from other parts of the world relatively inexpensively. And then they also started renting out pineapples. So if you're a middle-class person that couldn't afford the exorbitant fee of having your own pineapple, that you could rent one for the evening, still paying out the nose, but you could have that status just for you know one dinner party to impress your guests. And then, of course, the moment that these very industrious you know merchants made the pineapple more accessible, then the pineapple went out of style. <laughs> and so we, the pineapple you know, became increasingly ubiquitous, and, and it is what it is today, a delicious fruit, but just not the status symbol it was in the, at its peak in, in English history. The other quick example I'll share is this rule. You know this rule, Brett, you, you can't wear white after Labor Day. I personally hate that rule. I love monochrome. I wear white all year round. I love, <laughs> I love my neutrals. But this rule is from kind of the Emily Vanderbilt Gilded Age era of American history, where there were these increasing baroque rules of etiquette and propriety because the old American money wanted to distinguish themselves from the new money of the of the robber barons of the Gilded Age in American history. So that's one holdover today that that particular rule that is emblematic of this era in American history where rules were increasingly complex to confuse people. That It was a way to distinguish the insiders and the outsiders. So if you were caught wearing white after Labor Day, oh, we knew you were part of the out-group. You're not part of the old money in-group. So you're absolutely right that norms have been weaponized and they've been this tool to distinguish in-group from out-group for us to feel better about ourselves in comparison to others. And that's part of my project in distinguishing between civility and politeness. How do we, dis- how do we think about the norms that we actually want in society that contribute to the joint project of human flourishing and the good life? And how do we disambiguate that from the norms that divide and that make people feel poorly and that do oppress, that do marginalize? Because there is a rich history of that. The people who argue against politeness and civility are not wrong. But my take on that is that we just have to distinguish between civility actually respecting others, seeing them as our moral equals and worthy of respect in light of that, and mere politeness. So you argue that the source of our civility problem is that that all of us humans have this tension between self-love and wanting to be part of a group. So how do these competing forces lead to incivility? So I love the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to kind of illustrate this. Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And the story of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde really embodies that. Dr. Jekyll is this very well-respected physician, and he's repressed these darker aspects of self, these longings, these desires. And he creates this potion that allows him to transform into this insidious Mr. Hyde that goes out and creates mischief and does damage and hurts people at night. And the more he indulges his inner Mr. Hyde, the easier it becomes to transform into Mr. Hyde. And then he finds himself spontaneously transforming into Mr. Hyde. So what became this outlet for him to, you know, indulge these baser desires consequence-free while still maintaining his public persona and his great reputation as this prestigious physician, ultimately comes to overwhelm him. And, and overtake him. And, and that's, that's a really interesting point that I talk about how we each, in our nature, we're defined by a deep social impulse. We long to be in relationship. We long to be in friendship with others and community. We become fully human in relationship with others. And yet we're also defined by self-love. And we're, we're morally and biologically driven to meet our own needs before others. An extreme manifestation of our self-love is what St. Augustine, one of my favorite thinkers, called the libido dominendi, the lust to dominate others. And we see this idea in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, too, that the more we indulge that libido dominendi, that selfishness, that manifestation of selfishness within each of us, that the lust to dominate becomes the dominating lust, and it dominates us as well. And that's exactly what happens. Happened in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde, the Mr. Hyde within Dr. Jekyll ended up overtaking him and, and, and killing him. And so Blaise Pascal, one of my other favorite thinkers, this French polymath and genius scientist, he said that the human condition is defined by the greatness and wretchedness of man, that we have this unbelievable benevolence and capability of, of, of doing wonderful things for, for the world, for humanity, for but we're also fallen, and that these two aspects of self are equally part of who we are and what it means to be human. And so which aspect of ourself do we indulge? Do we cultivate? Do we refine and, and practice? Because that becomes 
our habits and our character over time. No, yeah, I think you're right. So all of us, we have this desire to be a part of a group. It feels good to be a part of a group. We're wired for that. But at the same time, we also think about ourselves. And when we indulge too much in our wants and wanting to dominate others and put our needs first, that's when incivility rises. That's when the tension in a group starts to rise. So it's this balancing act because you don't want to be completely submissive to the group. You want to still be a self, have boundaries as people talk about these days. But the trick is trying to figure out like, how much do I assert myself and how much do I put others first so we maintain group harmony? That's right. So civility is the art of human flourishing. Politeness wants to reduce human interactions to a science, to a set of rules. But you're absolutely right that human life, human relationships, human beings themselves, we're far too complex. It's too nuanced to just be reduced to a monolithic set of, of rules, that we need to have the inner disposition that gives us the wisdom to discern when to break the rules, when to say yes, when to say no, when to, when to contravene norms, prevailing norms of the day, in order to support the project, the joint project of human flourishing. So what you do in this book is you take readers on this sweeping tour of writings running from the dawn of civilization until the present age that grapple with this incivility causing tension. It's like, how can we be a self, but also belong in groups that everyone can flourish? What was the earliest civility manual that you found? So the oldest book in the world Brett, is a civility book. It's called The Teachings of Ptahhotep. So Ptahhotep from ancient Egypt, and we get it from 26, 2700 BC. And Ptahhotep was an Egyptian advisor, so an advisor to the Egyptian pharaoh, and he had reached the pinnacle of political life in Egypt and the civilized world at the time. And he was actually offered to become Pharaoh himself. He turned down that offer to power. And after, you know, being in the room where it happens his entire life, he chose to retire and he reflected on the stuff of the good life. What are the timeless principles of human flourishing? And so he wrote down these 38 teachings, these maxims that we have today as the maxims of Ptahhotep. And what is so fun is that if you look these up, they are remarkably timeless. Like they could be in a Miss Manners column in the Washington Post today. They're very basic and rudimentary things like, you know, be kind to your friends, not just when you need something. But just do it spontaneously. Do it just because they're your friends. Don't be cruel to people who are less powerful than you. Like, don't abuse your power. This is a great one when I also saw time and time again when I was looking at these civility handbooks across history and culture. Patahotep several times in his maxims has several maxims dedicated to do not gossip. He says, don't gossip. Don't do it. It undermines trust and it undermines this fragile project of community and civilization. So it's just remarkable how the the continuity, you know, he was just a thoughtful observer of the human experience and the human condition and saw that we were prone to act selfishly. And he said, don't, that's not the stuff of the good life. And it was fun to, so it's fun in my my chapter too, I start with Ptahotep and then trace this kind of ethos of civility as I define it, restraining the selfish aspects of who we are so that the social can flourish. Uh, And we see that time and time again, you know, to ancient Greece, etiquette manuals there, to, to the medieval period, to the Renaissance, to, you know, ancient Indian epics to modern day American etiquette manuals. So human nature doesn't change. It's an important problem today, but it's one we've been grappling with for a really long time. Yeah. So the Egyptians had the first one and basically it laid the groundwork. It's all about putting others before yourself and kind of harnessing your selfish desires. And then you just see that throughout the rest. I mean, all of them, what they all have in common, whether it's from ancient Greece, you particularly see this in ancient China with Confucianism, where it's all about the social order. What I love about Confucianism is, yes, they have these like strict rituals that you're supposed to follow in order to, you know, be a good person there. But the underlying principle was, it's it's Aristotelian. It's really interesting. It's very Aristotelian. It's that you have to do the right thing for the right reason at the right time in whatever situation you find yourself in. So it's all about just helping the social order flourish. And that you see that in everything. It's not, yeah, they have these, these guidelines and rules that, that are, are there to help you because they work in most situations. But the underlying thing is like, 
just do the right thing for the situation you find yourself in in order to help that social gathering be its best. That's absolutely right. I'm so glad you brought up Confucianism, both the handbook of uh, Confucius's Analects and also the Chinese Book of Rites, which is all these you know rituals and decorum of politeness. But central to Confucianism is this concept of Ren, which is a sort of humaneness and benevolence and goodness and love. And so Ren is central to Confucian philosophy and to Confucius's idea of how do we of the good life, how do we thrive in community with others and and. What, what's key is that, you know, people like Ptahotep, people like Confucius, people like, you know, Erasmus of Rotterdam, Daniel of Beckles, these other heroes of civility that I talk about throughout my book from different times and places, they would not have needed to take the time to write these works, these handbooks for their societies if people had been following them intuitively, right? They, they wrote them down because they, they looked around them, saw that people were falling short of these ideals and said, okay, like, let's think about what we need to let's let's reassess and let's put down in writing these principles that can guide us and help us flourish. And it, it's really easy for people to look around us and and feel like we're in the worst era of civility. And a lot of you know pundits and commentators, there's a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric around this topic. But I love zooming out and looking to the past and looking across history and culture. Like people have been, been grappling with this these questions for a very long time since the dawn of our species, which I think is is comforting and humbling because it allows us to recognize there are no easy solutions to this. This is the problem of the human condition. It's not a, not a now problem, not an America problem. This is a problem of who we are. And so it's never going to be perfectly resolved, but we each have a role in, in making it a little bit better or if we choose to, a little bit worse. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. 
See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So etiquette manuals really begin to proliferate during the Renaissance. And there's this sociologist, his name is Norbert Elias, who had this theory about why that is. And we wrote about this you know, years ago, and it's still an idea that I, I think about all the time. What Elias said was that the emphasis on etiquette rose in parallel with the emergence of the idea and implementation of democracy. Because the citizens of democracy need to have self-control for democracy to function. They need to have it in the sense of using their reason to vote for candidates and, and not be swayed by propaganda or demagogues. And you, you have to have the self-control to be able to get along with your fellow citizens. Just because you disagree with someone you can't punch them in the face, right? And manners are the regular exercise that keep people's self-control muscle in shape. So basically, if you want to have a well-functioning democracy, you have to have a, a well-functioning culture of manners. It's the laws of nature, right? Like you steal from me, I steal from you. And it's like survival of the fittest. And the whole story of human civilization is saying, okay, we're going to cooperate. We're going to de define some rules that we're all going to abide by. That's like, you know, an early form of the rule of law. And we're going to see how we can see if we can survive a little bit better, maybe flourish a little bit more. And so one thing I conceive in my book is, you know, we're familiar with this idea of the social contract. The social contract is this relationship between citizen and sovereign in the history of political theory that, that we surrender a, a few of our rights. For example, you know, someone takes from you, you punch them in the face. Okay, we agree that we surrender our right to punch someone in the face when they steal from us. We surrender that right to the sovereign. So sovereign's going to be the, the arbiter of justice. They're going to take care of that. And, and and in exchange for that, we get certain protections. Like, for example, there's an agreed upon rule, law, that we don't steal from one another in society. So that's the relationship between the traditional conception of the social contract, that vertical relationship between citizen and sovereign. But there is also this underappreciated horizontal social contract between citizens. It's an unspoken, often unwritten social contract that governs these invisible bonds that are just as essential to supporting the vertical social contract. The vertical social contract, again, which enabled us to come away from this state of nature, where, as Hobbes said, it was this war of all against all, like, you know, this free-for-all state of nature where we're just constantly in survival mode that we move away from that so we can actually flourish and build institutions and be build beautiful buildings and have art and, and, and survive and not just be in the, at the level of survival. But that our horizontal, this horizontal social contract is sustained by our social norms, norms that respect one another and that demand that we not just single-mindedly pursue our own interests at any given moment. That no, we live in society and that means we voluntarily put a natural cap and limit and restrain our desires for the sake of this joint project of living well with others, that is society. Okay, so that, that's interesting. That's a, a big argument you make uh, in the book. We do have this formal social contract. We have laws that establish here is how we are going to behave 
in certain situations. So instead of you punching somebody in retaliation, you go to the courts, right? You go to the state to That's right. mediate That's your right. conflict. Yep. But you're arguing is that, and what Elias is arguing is that formal social contract relies on a horizontal informal contract. If you don't have that sort of informal codes and manners of what it means to live well with others, then the formal one will just disintegrate. So here, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so here's a story that I've been reflecting on recently. So the earliest example of positive law that we have is from ancient Babylon called the Hammurabi Code. I was talking with a friend and my husband recently about the Hammurabi Code. So the king Hammurabi, you know, decided one day that he was going to enact on stone tablets 271 laws. And my question is, what was going on in ancient Babylon that caused Hammurabi to say, okay, now we need laws, right? Like, is it the case that norms and and the ancient Babylonian citizens' decision to voluntarily comply with social norms, had that been sufficient up until that point, and then the norms had degraded, and Hammurabi's like, okay, society's going to hell in a handbasket. Now we need laws with serious consequences, not just social sanctions, and not mob violence, too. That's another reason for the sovereign, that we're not just ruled by mob violence, that we need these laws in place to protect the peace and and tranquility of society. And my friend, her name is Stephanie Slade at at Reason Magazine. So, you know, classical liberal, libertarian. She's like, you know, maybe that's the case. Or maybe Hammurabi said to himself, you know, these laws, these norms are so widely followed. Why not just put them into law? (laughs) Why not just codify them and make sure that we're all on the same page? My husband offered a third idea that he had been reflecting on recently, that positive law has across history and culture been a power play. It's a way for a sovereign to say, you know, even if there is no problem, no no moral or norm degradation to say, you know, I am your sovereign and I'm going to protect you from this possible potential threat. So for example, one of the laws in Hammurabi's code is like, you know, you steal from someone, it's very lex talionis, very eye for an eye kind of theory of justice. Like, you know, you steal from someone, you get your hand cut off. It's pretty draconian. But so we don't, we don't know if people stealing, you know, from one another was this rampant issue that Hammurabi decided to enact these laws to prevent against. But it's possible that it was just a way for him to consolidate power. Like, okay, just in case anyone ever steals from you, know that I've got your back and we have these laws in place to make sure that they're punished. So all that to say, yes, um, the norms that we have as a society, they are what allow a government to be limited in nature, which is a whole argument I make in my book about why civility supports freedom and limited government, democracy, and human flourishing. Yeah, you talk about how that civility and manners are often an informal code that exists outside the law. And it's up to individuals to keep each other in check. But there are times when governments make laws to enforce manners. Like when we don't exercise, or like when we don't have individual self-control, we can't govern ourselves, then we open ourselves up to greater governance by external bodies. Just a few years ago in New York City, Mayor Michael Bloomberg instituted this whole politeness campaign. So if you're a parent at your kid's baseball game and you're too loud and rambunctious, you get fined $50. If you are sitting in the movie theater and texting, fined $50. If you do something gross, like spit in the street, like gross and rude, right? Fined $50. If you put your your feet on the subway, fined $50. On the subway seat next to you, fined $50. And New Yorkers were like, what? Like they did not at all like being civilized by the local politeness police and their city government. So it was totally ineffectual and it didn't last long. It was like, you know, immediately revoked. But the point is the less that we restrain voluntarily our own conduct and interactions with others, autocrats past and present will and have been tempted to enforce propriety and decorum and basic courtesy for our fellow citizens and our fellow people by law, by fines. And that's not an appropriate use of state of state uh, action, uh, in my opinion. And I think that most people would agree that we don't want to be micromanaged, have the horizontal, you know, invisible bonds between citizens. Those shouldn't, the, the state should have nothing to do with that. But that does require that we each choose and volunteer to consider the needs and well-beings of others alongside of ourselves, which is the hallmark of true civility. But what do you do when no one else is doing it? Do we each enforce each other or we just like all we do is 
be an example of good civility, hoping that it'll rub off on everyone else. So this is where the Larry Davids of the world come in. Do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? I, yes, yes. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> pretty, pretty good. Pretty, 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 pretty good. good. So so I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's one of our favorite shows. And it's a comedy of manners. And, and so Larry David, he calls himself, so the creator of Seinfeld, for those of you who don't know, he calls himself in his own show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, he calls himself a social assassin. So he is this you know, agent out there, always on the lookout for people who are committing social infractions. And he is everyone's inner ego and inner id. We're like, you know, we, we, every day we're out and about, we're in society. We see people cutting people off, jumping in line, just doing thoughtless, selfish things. And normally like most people, we just, we roll our eyes, but we don't say anything. Cause we're like, you know what? I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to, I don't want that fight right now. But Larry David does all the time. That's all he does. He sees the social infractions, the petty selfishness around him all the time. And he calls people out. So I love the example of the chat and cut, you know, Larry David's in line at a buffet and someone, a woman walks in to the person in front of Larry David and starts chatting up with this person and said, Oh, like you remember we met at this place several years ago. And Larry David goes, excuse me, ma'am. Like, I know what you're doing. This is a chat and cut. You're trying to rekindle a very tangential relationship with the person that that may not exist just so you can cut in line. And but you see all these decent Americans behind us, like me included, like we're not going to let you do this. Like anyone else might let you, you know, commit the social infraction, the, the chat and cut, but not today, not here. And so he makes her go to the back of the line. And so That's where the Larry Davids of the world come in. Like if we don't want Michael Bloomberg and others, like there are other stories I tell in the book of similar campaigns that happen in London and Paris. And so in in the last, you know, two decades. So there there is this temptation. It has happened in recent history where governments do get involved in politeness and manners if they get bad enough. But if we don't want that, then a few Larry Davids of the world keeping people in check, that's where they come in. I call Larry David, you know, foremost defender of civilization in that way. Okay, so we need some Larry Davids to call people out. But again, (laughs) you talk about like Larry David does it in a way that is incivil, uncivil sometimes. So again, it's just figuring out how to encourage people to be better, but do it in a way that doesn't bludgeon them. Right. right. It maintains their dignity. Right. And that's a that's a tough thing to balance. But uh, okay, so if your kids are acting doing things that are not great. Call them out. If you see a coworker, maybe take them aside and say, hey, I, this is probably not appropriate what you did. It, yeah, but it's tricky. It's, it's always tricky to call someone out like that. Yeah, but you're right. Actually calling people out, especially calling your children out, that is a way of respecting them. That's a way of loving them and not indulging them in harmful behavior, behavior that hurts others and that hurts themselves too. Okay, so civility can allow democracy to flourish without the state punishing us for being uncivil. You also talk about how civility can allow us to live a life of integrity. So having a a civil disposition means making sure your outward matches the inward. Yes. Right. I think sometimes people discount the role that outward actions can have on your inward actions, right? Sometimes people say, well, uh, you know, I might not be, I might not know all the rules of etiquette, but my heart is good and my intentions right. are good. That's fine. But sometimes you got to go a step further and be like, actually show what your inner disposition is by your outward actions. And then right. even if you don't have that in- inward disposition yet, Aristotle talks about this, you can cultivate that inner disposition by doing the outward things. And exactly. the, the goal is by, by doing virtuous things, you become a virtuous person. You're absolutely right. So integrity is all parts of the self making sense together, the inner and the outer cohering. We hear the word structural integrity and architecture, but we need a a soulish integrity where we're being held together. What we do and say externally is corroborated by the, the, ideally the disposition of civility of actually respecting others internally. And, and I thank you so much for bringing up Aristotle and his idea of like habit cultivating in the interior. So the story that I love about this is by an English writer named, named Max Beerborn. He, it's called The Happy Hypocrite. And he talks about this con artist who is, you know, vicious in every way and dishonest, but he falls in love with this beautiful woman and he decides that he's going to marry her. But she says, nope, sorry, I can't marry you because I will only marry a man with a virtuous face. So what does this guy do? He goes to a mask shop and buys a mask 
of a man with a virtuous face, puts the mask on, and then goes and proposes and marries this woman, that the, the woman he loves. And then something remarkable happens. After he put on this mask of a person with a virtuous face, he he becomes more and more virtuous. And, and being with his the love of his life makes him better. So he starts acting more virtuously. And then one of his rivals from his prior life comes onto the scene and, and exposes him to his beloved. He says, you know, this man's a fraud. He's actually a con artist. He's a vicious person. He's not who he says he was. And his beloved says, is this true? Like, show me your real self. And she takes off the mask. And what's behind the mask is the face of a virtuous man. So he had initially, you know, put on the face of a virtuous man as a pretense, right? It was hypocritical because internally he wasn't virtuous. But over time, as he did the actions and practices of a virtuous person while he was married to his beloved, he actually became virtuous. And that interior quality, that, that those external actions formed him internally and that made him uh, actually a virtuous person. So that that is a story I love that really illustrates your point that yes, there, there is this disconnect where we can be hypocritical and, you know, do the right things, say the right things, and not actually be respecting of others. But the inverse is also true, where we can let our virtuous actions form us, form character for us internally, and that our character can be brought into alignment the more that we act selflessly and sacrificially to others. So let's talk about ways we can revitalize civility in ourselves and in our community. You offer different suggestions, uh, civility education, bring that back in schools and also just amongst adults. You talk about Aristotelian magnanimity. But one I want to talk about, hone in on, is reviving the ancient art of hospitality. So how can reviving the ancient art of hospitality, or maybe this is a better question, what can we learn from the Odyssey about reviving the ancient art of hospitality? It's disappointing today that so much, when we hear the word hospitality, we often, our minds immediately go to hotels and fine dining and trips, like, you know, luxurious travel. But there is this rich tradition of hospitality as as what I conceive of civility in practice, which is showing kindness to others, showing kindness to the strangers, just because they're people in need. And so... I love the story of Eumaeus in the Odyssey. I particularly love Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. I'm excited, just a tiny footnote, her translation of the Iliad is coming out in just a few weeks. I'm very excited about it. So, But in the Odyssey, when I read it a few years ago, Emily Wilson's translation, it was all about hospitality. It's all about manners. It's all about Odysseus is constantly adapting his conduct to better put the people around him at ease and to survive. Like he's very much in a survival mode. And so, and it's all about the duties of host to guest and guest to host. But I love the story of Eumaeus that embodies what I uh, love about hospitality and, and ancient hospitality in particular, which is Odysseus is comes home and he's dressed as a beggar, a peasant, and he encounters his prior servant, Eumaeus. And Eumaeus doesn't recognize his master because his master has been gone for many, many years. And Eumaeus is, is a very poor man. And yet he encounters, he sees someone who's even worse off than him, R- clearly, you know, wearied by the world and impoverished and in need. And Eumaeus welcomes him into his home, offers him a meal, offers him shelter, offers him a bath, offers him new clothes. And only after doing all of those gracious, practical things for him, asks him who he is and and invites him to tell his story. And Odysseus is overjoyed because he has determined his servant's true character. His servant didn't know that it was Odysseus. His servant was just being kind to someone who he thought was in need and and clearly in greater need than he was. And um, so they have this beautiful, beautiful reunion. But there's this trope across history of the strangers in disguise. Like it's kind of a test. So someone who's of a very high status is dressed as someone as a low status just to sh- see, test the true character of the person. Are they going to be kind to me? Even if, if they don't think I can ever repay them for their kindness, or are they going to turn me away because, you know, it's inconvenient for them to show hospitality to me. So this trope of the stranger in disguise and of hospitality to the stranger, hospitality to someone in need just because of who they are as human beings is this beautiful expression of civility and hospitality. And again, civility is about what we owe to others, not just those who can do things for us, not just those who we like or who agree with us, but those who can't do anything for us and those who will never be able to repay us for these kindnesses and and the Homer's Odyssey. And we see this again, uh, this come up in Thousand and One Nights, this collection of Arabian folk 
folktales as well. We see this stranger in disguise trope and Sinbad, the character is kind of like this wily Odysseus type figure. And he's always, um, you know, playing tricks and getting into it and straight with strangers. But again, even in that, you know, distinct and foreign culture, that value of how you treat the other who you don't know, who can't repay you. Uh, who you may never see again. That's just a value of an in and of its own sake by utility. Because at this point in history, we didn't have affordable travel, planes, trains, and automobiles that could get us places safely. We didn't have credit cards and easy, you know, modes of exchange to be able to survive. It's like, you know, often cases, if someone didn't take you in, you would die or brave the elements. And so it really was this sort of milk of human goodness, hospitality, this high expression of civility, of of showing kindness to someone in need just because they were a human being like us. Yeah, I think reviving, so the Greeks called hospitality zenia. Yes, exactly. And I think that is like the soul of civility because it's all about putting the other first, right? So I I like the idea of, I try to do this in my own life, is in any situation, I try to think of myself as the host. Like, Mm -hmm. how can I make this person feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. But what's nice about Zania, not only is there sort of an ethos required, a civil ethos required by the host, there's a reciprocal ethos for the guest. And so if you are being treated by a host, like you, there's certain things expected of you, of you as a guest. Like you're not going to take advantage of the host. You're not going to overstay your welcome. You're not going to, you're going to say thank you. You're going to show some decorum. So I think, I think if we had that Zania attitude in all of our social interactions with people, it's like, well, I'm going to think of myself as a host. I'm going to make this person feel great. And then likewise, if we're being the recipient of, you know, someone's hospitality or civil behavior, reciprocate, like say thank you and, you know, don't take advantage of them because they're being civil to you. I think if you, if people just read the Odyssey and followed Zania, things would be great. I agree. And so it's interesting though, you know, hospitality is this high expression, noble expression of civility. And it, it, it's kind of this above and beyond act of generosity. Like we don't necessarily owe everyone an invitation to dinner at our home, right? Like we, we there is are these gradations of response, but it's a, but it's really beautiful when we do do that. But there's a reason why people today, especially, are skeptical. And well, I mean, people in all all human history have been, you know, there, there's reason to be wary of letting strangers into your home. The, the root word of guest and host are etymologically linked in Greek and German and Old French because there's a shared fate and a shared vulnerability that comes with the guest host relationship. If you're still going into a stranger's home, you know, you're vulnerable. You could be poisoned or killed in the night. If you're a person letting a stranger into your home, you don't know what they're going to do in the night. Like you, you don't know. It could be anyone. And so there is this mutual vulnerability. And so the Latin word for hospice, the root of hospitality is hospice. And which is the root of hospitality and also hospital, but it's also the root of hostility. And I I think that's really interesting because it gets to this duality, this dual potential outcome of being hospitable to others. Like there's this mutual vulnerability. An act of hospitality could go really well. It could go really poorly. And there are lots of wonderful stories about and funny stories about hospitality going really poorly. If we have time, I'd love to tell one either between Charles Dickens and Hans Christian Andersen or between David Hume and Rousseau. Do any of those interest you? Those yeah, are two different stories. Which one? Hume and Rousseau. Okay. So Rousseau was kind of a mercurial figure. He was kind of known for having a short temper and for being very volatile. He basically had no friends because he would just like turn on people on a moment's notice. And David Hume, David Hume was this Scottish philosopher, absolute genius, and just universally beloved, just a very good, very kind guy. The French loved David. They called him Le Bon David, the good David. Like they just, he was just good and kind. And one of David Hume's good friends in, in Paris said, look, like Rousseau's in trouble. The king wants to kill him. Like, can you take him in? And everyone told Hume, don't do it. You know, Rousseau had fights with all of his friends and like had basically alienated himself from everyone. Everyone said, David, do not touch Rousseau with a 10-foot pole. Like, d- doesn't matter what anyone says, don't do it. David Hume did not listen. And he invited Rousseau to, as his guest in England, because he was in trouble for his writings with the French king. And so he invites Rousseau to England and puts him up in a little cottage that he had outside of England, uh, outside of London, sorry. And, you know, pays for his food, pays for his travel, pays for his accommodation, gives him clothes, gives him books, whatever he needs, go, goes above and beyond to make Rousseau feel comfortable. And almost immediately upon getting to to this little cottage, 
Rousseau starts creating these stories in his head about David Hume conspiring against him. He says, you know what? David Hume only brought me here to embarrass me. This is why he put me up outside of London and not in the heart of the city where I should be, you know, hobnobbing with the great luminaries of the day. He's here to embarrass me. He's plotting against me. And so he like accepts and tells himself this narrative and becomes so unhinged. And David Hume starts to panic. Rousseau is the most powerful intellect and writer, like in the most powerful pen at the time. And so Rousseau turning on someone like had consequences. And David was someone, he was a good person and he valued his reputation. So he, he became increasingly concerned, increasingly worried. And Rousseau start, started writing these letters. These like unhinged letters accusing uh, David Hume of of conspiring against him and wanting to embarrass him and this whole plot against him. And it became this whole international incident between the French and the English government because Rousseau was totally unhinged. And so that's just a story that that doesn't really have, you know, a very happy ending. Like poor, poor David Hume was brought to his knees by having this volatile guest that he had gone out of his way to make comfortable and brought into his home and tried to accommodate in every way. But it goes to this duality and this mutual vulnerability in the guest host relationship that doesn't always go according to plan. When it goes well, it's beautiful. It's like, you're bonded by the shared experience, a shared moment in time that you'll never get again. And it's, um, you're brought across, uh, brought across differences. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful, but it also has the potential to not go well, which is why I outline in my book, several timeless rules of the guest host relationship that can ensure it does go well and that we do flourish in these kind of environments and it doesn't go poorly as it did for poor David Hume. And then you also, it requires in order to be hospitable, because there's a vulnerability that, you know, your hospitality might be taken advantage of, you have to have the courage to do it anyways, right? Because I think that's like, that's, that's why right. a lot of people withhold, right? Because like, well, right. I'm just going to be a sucker. Someone's going to take advantage of me. But you have to do it anyways. And that's where, you know, that, that Aristotelian magnanimity comes in yes. play, right? So if you do do good because it is good. You do it because yes. it's good in of itself. And then if someone returns that with, you know, like what, what Rousseau did to Hume, you just kind of have to be like, well, that's their problem, not mine. Yes. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt. But you just have to kind of be stoic about it. Yes. I thank you so much for bringing up Aristotelian magnanimity. So in my book, I have this concept called the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul. And this is the story of one person, one great-souled man or great-souled woman. In my case, I talk about my grandmother, who was this magnanimous soul in my life. This potential of one person with their life, their goodness, their kindness, the seeds of life and joy that they sow to make a difference in the world, uh, to make the world a better place, to, to create what I call a mellifluous echo across time and across place. So often, in the news or in you know tell all memoirs we hear these stories of generational trauma of vicious cycles i mean we're very familiar with those kind of stories of generational trauma and vicious cycles but what about the inverse what about the the potential of one great soul man or woman to put in play virtuous cycles that that reverberate across time and place so in the example of my grandmother she was this person for whom no human interaction was neutral. It was always a gift and it was always a joy for her to engage with anyone, like the clerk at the grocery store, her taxi driver, like a a stranger on the street. She was just someone that was so self-confident. Like she, you know, she was gorgeous. She was beautiful, but she forgot about herself that she could just totally focus on others. And my mother is the same way that she's just other utterly delighting in, in, in the relationship with others. She maximized every single human interaction and saw it as an opportunity to lighten and brighten someone's day that no interaction was neutral. Every, every exchange was an opportunity to make the world a better and brighter place. So she created this, wherever she went, like left in her wake, people brighter and better. She did, I will I will concede, she left a lot of people very perplexed, very confused by her. You know, we're, we're just not accustomed to people walking up and just being overjoyed to see us, but that, that is just who she was without any ulterior motive. Like she, she was just a, an ebullient, effervescent personality. So left a lot of people perplexed, but even more, she blessed and she elevated, she ennobled, she made their lives better. And she, you know, we're familiar with the phrase kicking the dog, right? Like, so a dad has a bad day at work and then comes home, yells at his wife, who yells at the kids, who, and the kid kicks the dog, right? Like, but what is the inverse of that, where one person's beautiful interaction and kind word, where that 
creates this ripple effect, this positive mellifluous echo that reverberates across time and place. And with people like my grandmother, magnanimous souls like her, we'll never know this side of eternity, the good that they've done with their lives because it's invisible, it's unseen. But I trust that, and we each have the power to do that with our lives, like that every single thing that we do can ennoble or debase. It can encourage people to want to be part of this joint project of civilization and human community, or in the case of democracy, self-governance. Or we can, through our, our thoughtlessness or our malice or um, you know selfishness, we can choose to, our, our actions can cause people to want to give up on the joint project of living well with others altogether. And so my hope is that sharing the, the story of my grandmother, that this concept of the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul can encourage people to really reclaim their sphere of influence on what they can control and be part of the solution in their everyday of making the world a better and brighter place. Well, Alexandra, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So please do consider buying the book. I created $700 of free gifts to anyone who purchases the book. And you can get that on my website, alexandraohudson.com to claim those gifts. And my publication is called Civic Renaissance. And it's about reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead richer and better lives. So please do consider joining me over there. Fantastic. Well, Alexandra Hudson, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. My guest today was Alexandra Hudson. She's the author of the book, The Soul of Civility. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, alexandraohudson.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash civility, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Sometimes your cat can be a mystery, like when they get so attached to certain cardboard boxes. <laughs> but when you use Fresh Step Cat Litter, there's no question that you're making your cat happy thanks to amazing odor control. Fresh Step Clumping Cat Litters prevent stinky crumbles and make scooping easy by locking in liquid and odor immediately. That means you can keep your house clean and your bond strong. There's no mystery here. Find Fresh Step Cat Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates.